Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. In the 1960s, we know that there was a revolution in the head, with all those wild new ideas that were emerging, and a revolution in the heart with all that love that was floating around, and a revolution in the soul, with those strange, exotic, mystical beliefs that were coming into consciousness. But there was also a more quiet revolution going on too. A revolution in the gut, in the belly. New ideas about how food could raise consciousness and change the world. A counter-cultural cuisine, you might say. And that is what is on the menu in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. But before we tuck in, I want to say thanks so much to Nick Edwards, to Prue, to Mick and to Dan who've given us their support this week in building this little countercultural community. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Join them. Join us at bureauoflostculture.com. You can get our newsletter. Suggest guests for future shows. Support our wild endeavours. Okay, well, that was the starter. Now on to the main course. His story starts with a watermelon, and food is inextricably connected with all the ingredients of his long countercultural life. He cured himself of dysentery and hepatitis in Central Asia on the hippie trail by diet. With his brother Gregory, he opened a restaurant that became the go-to place to eat for the great and good and the glitterati of swinging London. He's a countercultural entrepreneur, an author a food and an environmental activist. He changed what our supermarkets stock on the shelves. You've probably eaten some of the products he developed. He's pushing 80, but he looks 20 years younger. Testament, no doubt, to the diet he's followed. He's led a very successful life in the counterculture and beyond, and he's still at it, writing, speaking, growing his organic vegetables on his small holding near Hastings. We're going to talk about all that and other stuff on the menu. The effects of diet on an LSD trip, the invention of the veggie burger, green and black's chocolate, and looking at the future through the wrong end of a telescope. He is Craig Sams. Hello, Craig. Hi. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Now, before we dig in, I thought I would read something that you said or wrote. In 1965, I travelled the hippie trail just a few years before it acquired that name, hitchhiking, walking and taking trains and buses from London to India, via Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, Iran and Pakistan. Eventually, I was in New Delhi, where I spent a night in the general hospital with advanced amoebic dysentery and infectious hepatitis. Realising I might die if I stayed in the hospital, I struggled on to Kabul where I resorted to the simple folk remedy of unleavened wholemeal flatbread and unsweetened strong tea to treat the dysentery. The liver pain subsided, and I was fit enough to travel back to London. I'd learned that diet and health were inextricably interlinked, and back at university in Philadelphia later in 1965, I adopted the macrobiotic diet. On graduation in 1966, I decided to open a macrobiotic restaurant in London. Do you remember okay. that? <laughs> it's all clear as a bell, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, before we get, uh, we could just cycle back even further. Who is Craig Sams? I was born in Nebraska during the war. My dad was fighting in the Pacific. I was conceived in L.A., and my mum went home to Nebraska and had me in July of 44. My grandfather farmed hemp because it was part of the Navy's need for rope. Nobody had invented polypropylene rope. And watermelons, which were taken to supermarkets in nearby Sioux City. My mother was checking the watermelons to see if they were ripe when she got her labor pains. And um, I guess the last thing I tasted in the womb was watermelon. And Do you still like drinking Watermelon juice? I am totally addicted to watermelon. It does something to me that nothing else does. And, uh, you know, I, I eat, we get about a watermelon, a small watermelon a week, and it's gone by the end of the week or by the time the next one arrives. Watermelon. It's quite significant that your life started off then with a piece of fruit. Yeah, mm. and my life in paradise ended with a piece of fruit and I was ejected into the world. <laughs> but that's, uh, anyway, that's, that's by the by. Then my mother went back to L.A., 
my dad was so screwed up from the war that she divorced him and went back to the farm. But they got together, remarried. He was very ill, post-traumatic stress disorder, call it what you like, but he was really ill. My mom uh, took him to a doctor in Hollywood, a Dr. Nakadari, a Japanese doctor, who put him on a strict sugar-free, dairy-free, whole-grain diet that you could almost call macrobiotics, although the word hadn't entered the language at that time. Um, My dad got better, and they uh, went on to have my brother... So we ate a fairly healthy diet as kids. You know, we only ate whole wheat bread. We only ate brown rice when we did have rice. Um, we weren't strictly vegetarian, but we moved to England. My dad's work took him to London, and he was friendly with some a Sikh family who were vegetarians. So we kind of didn't eat a lot of meat, and we understood about diet and health. Uh, well, my parents understood about it. Uh, really, our mother understood about it, and the rest of us ate what we were given. <laughs> so what uh, year was this that you came to London then? We came to London in 1951. Mm, okay. So we actually had a ration book. Right. Um, we were here for the big pea super fogs, uh, right. particularly 53. That must have been quite exciting for you, for a kid from Nebraska then, to come well, to you. Yeah, from Nebraska and then growing up in LA. to the age of seven in California, yeah. in L.A., Santa Monica and Venice. And then, wham, bam, we were in London. We then lived in Germany for a year, and then my dad's work took him to Omaha, Nebraska, which was great because we were near my mother's family. Um, I wouldn't recommend Omaha in the 1950s. You know, its biggest source of pride was that that year they had slaughtered more hogs than Chicago. (laughs) Um, And we were within smelling distance of the stockyards where all that... I love the way that food goes through all of your stories. It's great. (laughs) And and then we lived in France for a year and Mm. then moved back to London. Mm. I went to university in Philadelphia, and my mum and my brother were in London the early 60s. And I would come home every summer, you know, fell into the London scene, which was... In the early days, places, you know, sort of trad jazz scene. And then, of course, that morphed into a more rhythm and blues scene. So I was going to the Flamingo and the Marquee and the Hundred Club, but mostly the Flamingo. And um, and then I'd go back to university. I remember I took a Beatles record back with me. And the kind of knowledgeable guy on in our fraternity house said, well, it's very derivative. It sounds a bit like the Beach Boys and a bit like this and that. And, and then we were going to a fraternity conference in Chicago. I was in charge of the food. That's where I learned how to run a restaurant. And passing Cleveland, a radio DJ played this song. He said, this is from a group in England called the Beatles. That's B-E-A-T-L-E-S. And he played, uh, I can't remember what it was, Love me do um he said well it's you know accounting for taste that's what they like over in england and of course the beatles were huge called the invasion wasn't it you know, yeah you know, the british invasion quite early on your stories entwined with this island and london as well and where i started off which was you setting off on this um hippie trail but it wasn't actually called at the time you must have been one of the first people to do that 65 was quite early i took a year off i spent the early part of it in Formentera, I'd, I was there probably until October, November, came back to London, and then in February hit the road mm. to the east. Traveled by train, by bus, by hitchhiking, across the desert between Damascus and Baghdad. You know, the there were trucks that knew their way. There wasn't actually a road, a proper mm. road for a lot of that distance. And then didn't the hippie trail was kind of a northern route. I did the southern route, so Boucher, Shiraz, Zahidan, Kirman. It's it's a southern way into Pakistan and Quetta and then to Karachi and then across to India. So And I just had a bag with my possessions in it, but I had a little portable record player. Wow. Just come out with that. And I had four LPs. So I would play music and that would engage with people wherever I was. So you'd plug in? It was an electric player or was it wind up? Batteries. Batteries, okay. That now really is completely inconceivable, I think. Somebody would 
take that route in that way now because of all the conflicts that there've been since. I mean, yeah. you know, Iraq and Kuwait, for instance, Iran, you know, and even in Pakistan, you know, it's, the world has changed so much, hasn't it? And for a young person uh, then, you know, to take off in that way, you know, obviously pre-mobile phone, pre-internet, so you don't, you, what you were relying on was other people's stories and recommendations and tips, right? And then you just set off with a few, a record player and a few clothes and bits and pieces and some cash and, and that but, was it. You just, but people hadn't seen Europeans traveling in that way. So, you know, there were times when, uh, I mean, a village uh, outside of uh, a, uh, a town in, um, uh, called Abargu in Iran, mm. a sort of mud-walled village, and people came running out and sort of dragged me in to stay the night because, you know, I was, I relieved the usual pattern of life in a village. Well, also, like you must that. have seemed like an exotic creature. Yeah. You'd yeah. sort of come over the horizon with your back. So, I mean, um, I imagine tremendously exciting until you got ill. Um, must have been a very colourful sensory experience, yeah. right, to, to go through all that. And that getting ill, um, of course, is quite significant in your story as well, isn't it? Because curing yourself effectively by making some dietary choices, I'm assuming... It was diet. in Iran mm. when the dysentery first hit mm. that people said, you eat this flat wholemeal right. meal bread and unsweetened tea, and it worked. Mm. Then I got to Pakistan where they didn't have that kind of bread. And... The amoebic dysentery leads to hepatitis. Mm. I didn't really cure it until I got to Kabul, where they had the same kind of food mm. as they had in Iran. Right. And then, suddenly, my eyeballs, which the white was not even yellow, it was green from the amount of bile that was floating around, they just cleared up, mm. and I was fit to travel again. Looking back, do you think that was a very significant moment for you? You already had an upbringing where food and diet yeah. and you know were already important, but was this a kind of signal moment where you connected fundamental health issues with what you put in your body? It was more mm. about I just cured the dysentery, which mm. was it was really inconvenient when you were traveling. Yeah. And then I went back in London. I stayed in Britain, um, and I was well enough. Uh, that summer, I... Uh, promoted on Shanklin Pier on the Isle of Wight, brought bands down from London, which nobody had ever be done before because they hadn't tackled the logistics of getting the bands back. Uh, so we had Jimmy James and the Vagabonds, the Action, the Clique. And then I went back to university and some friends were into the macrobiotic diet. It was just kicking off. We would take turns going to a supplier called Infinity Foods in New York who had brown rice and miso and tamari and kombu seaweed and those kind of macrobiotic staples. On my trip, I also went to a restaurant that had just opened called The Paradox. And it was the, America's first macrobiotic restaurant. This is a sidebar about the macrobiotic way of eating. It was developed and popularized by the Japanese, particularly by George Oshawa in the 1930s and subsequently by his disciple Michio Kushi. Whole grains and a variety of cooked and raw vegetables, beans, mild seasonings, edible seaweed, fermented soy products, fruit, fish, nut and seeds are recommended, combined into meals according to the ancient Chinese principle of balance known as yin and yang. Yin and yang is a Chinese philosophical concept that describes interconnected opposite forces. Yin is the receptive, yang the active seen in all forms of change, such as the annual cycle of the seasons, winter and summer. Sexual coupling, female and male. That's what it says here. I think I'll probably expand that these days. And the socio-political history of disorder and order. All food is considered to have both properties, with one dominating. Foods with yang qualities are considered compact, dense, heavy and hot. Those with yin qualities, expansive, light, cold and diffuse. Brown rice and other whole grains such as barley, millet and oats are considered by macrobiotics to be the foods in which yin and yang are closest to being in balance. Other principles of the diet are to reduce animal products, eat locally grown foods that are in season and consume meals in moderation. The macrobiotic bookshop in New York's East Village, close to the Paradox restaurant that Craig mentioned, 
was raided by the FBI and told not to sell any books until their content had been reviewed. Eventually, the books were taken away and burned. Professor Frederick Stair of Harvard University wrote an article in the Reader's Digest calling macrobiotics the hippie diet that's killing our kids. The word uh, macro means big and bio means life. So it kind of has a dual meaning in that it makes your life richer, more fulfilling, but also longer. Uh, so it's kind of the art of longevity as well as being healthy and happy in the here and now. So um, it hadn't taken off in, it was a kind of a specialist thing. There were a couple of macrobiotic restaurants in Paris. I started serving, supplying macrobiotic food to the UFO club, which had just opened. Right, in. so well, so that's an important part of this story too, isn't it? Because the UFO has come up a lot in this program, um, just around the corner from here in the Blarney club up in Tottenham yeah. Court Road. And this tiny little place, tiny little club, which didn't even last very long, but it seems to have been this kind of symbolic and psychic center for a lot of countercultural stuff. So before we dig into that and what happened next with you, you were part of this rather small London underground scene, right? I had met a couple of guys in Delhi when we were all staying in a Sikh Gurdwara, because the Sikhs have a tradition of hospitality to travelers. I had some opium I'd bought in Quetta and... Uh, the street dentist in Karachi had cocaine because that was the, what dentists used as a painkiller. But I wasn't taking any of that stuff because it, I was, it wasn't well enough to do it. So I gave it to them, and in exchange they gave me a thousand microgram Sandoz capsule of LSD from the people who had invented it. Well, they said it's a thousand micrograms, so you, you know don't take take the fifth of it at a time maximum. What was the first experience of acid like for you? Um, I was in Mildenhall in Suffolk uh, waiting for a flight back to the US. My dad worked for the American Air Force so I could fly free back to university. And, but it was on a space available basis. And so I took it in the morning and went for a walk in this beautiful Suffolk countryside. It was a perfect way to experience acid for the first time. I remember standing in front of somebody's garden of flowers and exclaiming to her what incredibly beautiful flowers she had, and she was incredibly flattered. But, you know, it was as gardeners are when everybody <laughs> compliments their work. But, you know, and, and then it turned out there was a space on the flight, and so I concluded the trip in an airplane where they had human remains on the plane because somebody had died and they were flying them back to uh, the U.S. to be buried. It was, you know, everybody's first trip is, like, amazing in some way, and that was amazing. And uh, when I got back to Philadelphia, I still had four-fifths of that capsule viable, uh, you know, and I hooked up with other people who were just beginning to get into the same thing. And I do some people in New York uh, from the Juilliard School of Music who were into DMT, and so that also became part of the picture. So do you think that was like consciousness raising for you then, opening you up to that whole thing that was starting to happen in America and the UK? Countercultural movement, I suppose, but I mean, it's been called lots of things, isn't it? The age of Aquarius, yeah. the, the sense of, uh, you know, transformation and the potential in the world to change things and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was people kind of, we just knew something was happening, but it hadn't really coalesced into any kind of political or a movement quite yet at that stage. And then I came back to England. Um, I hooked up with Michael English. He was a friend who became Hapshash in the Coloured Coat. Artist. Artist. And he did all the posters for the UFO Club. Pete Townsend's girlfriend and Michael English's girlfriend made clothes in a basement well, on Eccleston Square. 
I was working with an artist who dyed blobby silk designs. So I would take them silk, which they would make up into dresses and shirts and sell through boutiques. We would have parties there where we'd all take acid on a Friday or Saturday night and listen to Billy Preston because that was about as psychedelic as music was in 66. And then the UFO club opened. And you provided yeah. food to the UFO, right? Well, we, it... I'd take food down there every uh, night before they opened, and that was available for on sale. And then I had a couple of macrobiotic colleagues by then. Uh, a friend of mine from Formentera was really dedicated to it, and... Um, People would buy the food between a Pink Floyd set or a soft machine set, and she or another friend, Angie, who was immortalized in Davy Graham's song of that name, would sidle up to them and say, do you know what you're eating? And explain to them how sugar was bad for you and whole grains were good for you, and explain to people what this funny right. food was right. that they were eating. <laughs> And a lot of them were tripping anyway, so they were very <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, open to sure. that kind of conversation. It's quite interesting with on the tripping thing, isn't it? Because there's definitely a time, just from my personal experience, there's definitely a time when you want to eat, and there's definitely a time when you don't want to eat. Yeah. You know, maybe a bit later on you want to eat something. And I suppose you're, you're basically providing people with some consciousness-raising food, right? I mean, yeah. And it's quite interesting. So it wasn't just the case of, okay, here's some, you know, home prepared or prepared by love food there was a sort of agenda that this actually we need to get this out we need to kind of like tell people about this way of eating part of that kind of countercultural activity in a way right the, the, the countercultural cuisine well acid was on sugar cubes mm -hmm. there was a kind of philosophy an idea around that oh if your trip is going bad take some sugar and that will perk you up again and what we were saying is no <laughs> you know eat whole food and you won't have that kind of the opposite of a sugar rush a yeah. sugar slump dive, dive yeah. yeah yeah and um yeah because joey mellon told me that um that sugar was absolutely essential you know that they used to have bowls of smarties and stuff lying around so that you know, I'll have a Mars bar when you did when you, yeah, when you dropped. I knew Joey when he was working at Hung On You and we were saying no eat a whole food diet and you'll be able to take acid and be high without any negative I'm loving this effects. Yeah, so that was our so, message if yeah. you like to people who were taking acid is if you want to enjoy acid yeah get your diet sorted out as well and get your diet sorted out in advance right so get away from the fish and chips the sort of British cuisine or whatever it was at the time, start eating healthy, and then when you do actually take a tab, you're much more likely to actually have a positive experience, right? And so. people were, you know, they'd order a burger or whatever it was that they would normally eat. They, they If they were sensitive to it, mm. suddenly they would realize, God, this is like a dead animal. It's mm. been ground up and it's, uh, you know, it's kind Pump, of... Pumped full of weird stuff yeah I mean, they, they, they just it was an intuitive reaction mm. to mm. the kind of food that was around you know mm. a lot of people would go from the UFO club to a place called the Golden Egg mm. on Oxford Street which was you know that kind of food and it was one of the few all night restaurants mm. in London at that time and they'd order food and then they couldn't eat it mm. because it just didn't seem right somehow yeah, it's so that it's hard to mm pinned down exactly what it was. It was just a gut reaction, really. So let's move on to the opening of Seed. My first restaurant was in the Centre House in Camden Hill Road in Notting Hill. And that was um, opened in February of 67. But we had a little cohort of customers because they were people who were at the UFO Club. And one of those was Yoko Ono, who I hadn't realized it until... Oh, a year or two ago, she worked at the Paradox when I had gone there and been inspired to open something like it in London. And people just wrote in a guest book. Uh, we had a guest book that said, I am not in possession of any illegal goods. And that covered me if somebody did get busted if they if they came in the restaurant or yeah, whatever. Yeah, because I heard that um, you were getting complaints about the smell, getting the smell of weed. Property. It was called the Center House. They had a yoga thing upstairs and um, 
various kind of alternative therapies. Christopher, the the owner of it, just shouted down, you know, can you please stop smoking dope down there because the smell is coming all the way up to the second. In the early days, people just felt like they could, they, it was attractive that you could go somewhere where you could smoke a joint and eat food. Mm. You know, you couldn't do it in any other cafe in sure. London. That. Right, so Yoko Ono and everybody else would sign in and also put a little disclaimer saying that we're not carrying or yeah. holding any stuff. Yeah. Have you still got the guest book? Yeah, I have. So I've got Yoko's signature and various other people, the people who came there. Right. You know, Very good. So that was the first one. And then Seed came a little bit later, right? A guy called Graham Bond, uh, he brought his portable Hammond organ down one night to play. And the idea was that he was going to come at 9 o'clock. Um, and play until we closed at 10.30 or 11. Um, He didn't get there until after 11, typical Graham Bond-type incoherence. And he played, and the neighbors were outraged. It was a residential area, Camden Hill Road, and suddenly here was this sort of rhythm and blues organ banging away at midnight. We agreed to leave, and I found premises much nicer, bigger premises on Bishop's Bridge Road and set about getting that open. Um, At that point, a few things happened in my life and I ran into a problem with immigration. It wasn't possible for me to stay in the UK. Um, I went to the US Uh, My brother, who had come back from University of California at Berkeley, picked up where I'd left off and got the restaurant open. Um, And it became an overnight success. Here is another sidebar about the Seed restaurant in West London. Seed had two rooms in a big rambling basement of a hotel. One had cushions on the floor, set around tables made out of the four to five foot diameter reels the electrical cable was wound around. So customers met one another as there were no reservations and no exclusivity of tables. In the other room, there was a tent style hanging from the ceiling and normal square wooden tables. The menu, called by Gregory, Tomorrow's You, was rice and vegetables for four shillings, that's 20p. There were two specials differentiated by the size of the earthenware bowl. The light special, seven shillings and six pence, and a heavy special, around about 50p, which was browned rice, vegetables, and nituki. And then two other portions, vegetable tempura, or a bean dish, falafel, tabbouleh, hummus, or whatever was special that day. Seed also supplied, as part of an outreach and education mission, a free meal which comprised the brown rice and vegetables, plus a cup of Kuchika from the always-on help-yourself tea boiler. A tape recorder belted out the latest sounds and grooves from a wide variety of rock genres, but mostly psychedelic and mellow blues. Mark Bolan of T-Rex walked to Seed to get the free meal one day, and it was there that he met Mickey Finn, an event that rock historians cited when calling for a blue plaque for historical buildings to be put up on the site many years later. Regular visitors, as we're going to hear, included John and Yoko, Terence Stamp, most of the Stones, as well as vegetarian macrobiotic activists and enthusiasts, and most of the denizens of the underground alternative culture that was springing up all over the country. John Lennon and Yoko became regulars. John Peel was a big fan. Terence Stamp was a regular. I'm just drop, dropping names, but it just it. gives you a yeah. sense of... Yeah what the place was like. Yeah, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones came there. You know, a lot of people who came, came because it was cool. They weren't particularly concerned. They, they accepted the fact that they had to eat brown rice and vegetables, but it wasn't their <laughs> primary motive for being It was because it had there. become part of the scene in some way as yeah. well, right? Well, yeah. it was the only mm. restaurant, really, that was completely cool. Just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, this thing that I keep coming back to because I'm fascinated by is this sense of you and your peers, this community of people, a fairly small community of countercultural people, having this sense that you were changing things, that there was something in the air, some potential transformation. Is that something that you felt? Totally, totally. We thought that 
everybody would be eating a macrobiotic diet by the early 70s. Uh, my brother put it quite neatly. We could see the future, but we were looking through the wrong end of the telescope, <laughs> so it seemed a lot closer than it really was. Um, and people who adopted the diet or rarely fell by the wayside. You know, once mm. you got into mm. a healthy diet and appreciated its benefits, mm. you you were hooked for life. Mm. And, um, you know, people from the restaurant, you know, they're still in touch. You know, people mm. remember it fondly. That was the impact that we had on, was on food. But yeah, the uh, expression, when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the city shake. Hmm. The International Times used it on their post. The music was changing, and we felt that was somehow revolutionary. And then there were all the uh, women's liberation, gay liberation. It was all happening the ecology at the movement. same time. The ecology movement, right. the green movement. Yeah, we were, we were getting organic food before organic certification even existed. The only validation was that the people who supplied it to the people who delivered it to our restaurant, a guy, they were members of the Soil Association, and that was authenticating the vegetables they produced that we then used in our restaurant. So we were as organic as we could get. Organic um, meaning grown without the assistance of artificial fertilizers and yeah. chemicals. It's fascinating to look from 2022, you go into every single supermarket in this city, and probably, and certainly around the country, and I imagine in most countries now, is that there's an organic section, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the organic this and organic that, and it's sort of taken for granted it's become completely mainstream, but I mean, you were talking about it at the, right at the beginning, really, when you know the one restaurant, maybe a shop or something in, in the city, people didn't really know the terminology even right uh, what's quite interesting i think about this aspect of counterculture the cuisine if you like or the cook is that it really did follow through it really did have that impact and has lasted through to these times as of course as the gay movement as is the women's liberation movement as is the environmental movement as well it's not the only thing but a lot of that other idealism of the 60s in terms of societal changes and stuff a lot of it didn't happen did it it founded it founded in the 70s, it wasn't able to, to become realized in some ways. But Probably the biggest setback was the fact that the drugs that encouraged that kind of high consciousness were banned. Um, that's changing now. Um, you know, psilocybin is being used very successfully in therapy in places like Oregon. Amanda Fielding's work with the Beckley Foundation is transforming the, and that was what was happening in the 60s. The psychiatric profession said mental illness is going to be a thing of the past because we have these drugs that will cure it. Uh, Timothy Leary ended up being criminalized mm. and he was a psychotherapist he knew what these treatments could do for people but it all got out of hand because it was self-medication we are that barrier is probably disappearing now so it's going to be quite interesting to see how things unfold in the next decade. I hadn't thought of that before, but the banning of certain drugs, the attempt by the government to control people's consciousness, that did put a block on a lot of that kind of idealistic change that might have come about. There's another thing I wanted to talk to you about, Craig, which is right there at the beginning, or it seems like it was right there at the beginning, because you, maybe like also like Nicholas Albury, uh, maybe like Felix Dennis too. You were one of the people who were also entrepreneurial, right, in the counterculture as well, which has been borne out through the rest of your career. We're going to touch on that later. And you were one of the people who actually were able to take this stuff and turn it into a business as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, right from the beginning. The restaurant was profitable. My brother opened a small shop on All Saints Road. It was called Ceres Grain Shop, um, but it was basically a natural food store. And up till then, health food stores sold uh, vitamins and supplements and this and that. But they didn't have a full range of cereals and grains and you know, that kind of whole food stuff. Um, and that then became 
the prototype for hundreds of natural food stores. And we then started pre-packing natural foods. I would give talks to health food shop owners explaining why they should stock this stuff. Our sales guy at the time was someone called Jay Landisman who um, would call up health food shops and say, are you getting customers with long hair and colorful clothes coming in asking for foods like brown rice and miso and tamari and kombu seaweed. And the retailers would say, well, yes, yes, we are. We have for you the answer, the Harmony Foods range. Uh, we have a package, it was the down-to-earth package that gives you an introductory range of all the products, put them on your shelves, and you can satisfy those customers. And that was the beginning of the transformation of the health food trade into natural food stores. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was, we certainly commercialized it shamelessly. Um, we had the shop moved to Portobello Road. It became a much bigger shop. It became a destination for people from all over the country. They would come down and buy rice, brown rice, in 50-kilo bags, mm. like sacks that they would load into the back of their car because you couldn't get it anywhere else. But eventually, through Harmony Foods, you could get it everywhere in the country in your nearest health food shop or natural food store. Mm. But it seems to me that there was a group of people who were entrepreneurial. Either they had the skills or maybe the motivation or the mindset or something to actually see things that way. Steve Jobs, you know, <laughs> made Apple, you know, he mm -hmm. put, you know, was a kind of countercultural type himself. I mean, he puts down his, you know, taking acid for him. I think for Bill Gates too, actually, was like a kind of, signal moment in his kind of evolution was able then to actually make this into into a business yeah. which is going to affect things in a much bigger way than talking or dreaming about it right now what happened next with you is is that so seed has become this destination venue series has become this destination venue you're also spreading out into changing the way that health food shops make and then and then whole earth happens. So tell us about that. Well, Whole Earth was originally Harmony Foods. That was the name. And our symbol was a yin-yang sign, but instead of just the normal yin-yang, we had a leafy branch coming up and roots coming down. So kind of emphasizing it was yin-yang and food, because that was the driving philosophy of macrobiotics. The shop on Portobello Road, our next door neighbor, closed down and um, we took that over and opened the bakery. In the bakery, we, we were manufacturing for the first time and we made jams sweetened with fruit juice instead of sugar. We made peanut butter, which we then moved, developed the peanut butter business. We then changed the brand name to Whole Earth. Whole Earth moved away ultimately from brown rice and beans because anybody could do that. We uh, reached a point in 1982 where we were probably too big for our boots. Um, my brother had just created the veggie burger. And we'd registered the trademark and launched that. That's an the, important thing to mention, I mean, and to underline actually, is that your brother, Gregory, yeah. invented the veggie burger, right? Yep. I mean, and the name, which we registered as a trademark mm. because... You know, the term, as well as the recipe, you know, nobody said the words veggie and burger in the same <laughs> word. That's what Alice said earlier. It's like it's, an oxymoron. It's hard to believe because it's like part of the language. And, yeah. you know, you'd never be able to register it now. if it. Uh, right. At that point, we divided the business. He took the veggie burger and flew solo with that and really made it happen. Uh, he built it up as a, you know, it was just, it became huge. And I kept... Whole Earth Foods, which was mainly peanut butter and jam. Mm. Um, we figured out a way to stop oil separation without using hydrogenated fat, which nobody had ever done before. And the jams sold really well everywhere, France, Italy, the US. It was really kind of the backbone of the business through the 80s. I found some farmers in Africa who were the only people producing organic peanuts at that time. They failed an aflatoxin test, which you have to do on peanuts to make sure they're safe to eat. Um, and the French agronomist who was working with them said, well, these farmers also mm. grow cacao. 
that I visited a cocoa plantation and fell in love. Um, I got a sample of chocolate made, 70% solids, and we launched Green and Blacks, the first organic. I'm sure a lot of people listening have um, had the pleasure of eating Green and Blacks chocolate at some point, although I was eating a bar myself already last week. I mean, that's a quite a big thing as well, Craig. I mean, you've gone a whole earth, very successful brand. And yeah. Green and Black's another very successful brand. You've also, I'll just drop in as well, you've written several books about food, right? You're also um, you know, he- heavily involved with the Soil Association, which, as you mentioned earlier, was has been promoting the sort of organic revolution in vegetable growing and stuff. Your whole life, really, has been rotated around positive effects, both in terms of personal diet and in terms of the ethics of production of things that we eat, right? True. And it always amazed me that we weren't more successful because it still amazes me how many people eat junk food growing in horrendous conditions that are destroying the soil that is the foundation of our lives, that are exploiting animals in a horrendous way, so that we can have more money to spend on other stuff by saving money on food. Um, So a lot of it was about getting products that were right all the way through from the way they were grown to the way they were produced. My wife, well, my girlfriend at the time came up with the name Green and Blacks because green implied organic and black because it was the darkest chocolate. Mm. When we showed it to supermarkets, one of them, I won't name them, sent it back with a bar of their cooking chocolate. <laughs> and the simple message was, people don't eat this stuff. This is what you use for cooking, but nobody's going to eat 70% uh, chocolate. Duh. Well, people are eating 85% chocolate now. Yeah, so, yeah you know, sure. Not even more so, yeah. Uh, you, you have changed things, haven't you? You're surprised that you haven't changed it more. But then you said earlier on that you know, you and Gregory thought that everybody would be eating macrobiotically by the early 70s. And I suppose there's a lot of reasons for that. What about taste? I mean, you can eat healthy uh, macrobiotically. And for you, is that the most delicious way to eat as well? Food in our restaurant, people may not have come for the food. Thing you got tasted good. It was Mm. very easy on the palate. And yet, it was really healthy. You know, you're eating brown rice with... uh, a sauce made with tahini and tamari. You were, we did vegetable beignets, well, tempura vegetables, and of course that always goes down well. Yeah, foods like that, they do taste good, mm. and you just need to get that right. You know, there's this idea that somehow vegetarian food is bland and boring, but it's not true at all. Also, it might not have that immediate hit the salt, the sugar thing, right? But I mean, yeah. the big thing, of course, is is that you feel good afterwards. You don't get that bloating, feel like exhausted. Well, that's after the, you've eaten, you know, or have that kind of sugar rush followed by the kind of sugar mm. collapse. Need need to go and lie down after um, a heavy lunch. Or the rest of your day is kind of better, right? Yeah. So there's a short term mm. benefit. That, you know, it's lighter. It doesn't drag you down. Mm. But the long term benefit is really where you lock your customers in because when people who have always had a cold every winter don't have a cold Mm. and they make the connection to the dietary changes, then, you know, they're never going to go back to the other way of eating. Mm. And it's that, that transformation that is why you go into supermarkets and they've got two or three different kinds of brown rice and a whole selection of organic vegetables. Back in the day, they would be in an organic natural food section. Mm. We fought tooth and nail to get out of those sections because we didn't want to be somewhere that people would just push their trolley past. We wanted to be on the shelf next to the non-organic or non-whole food product so that people could make a choice Mm. right there at the time. And that was that was that was really when the breakthrough happened yeah i also wanted to mention i mean you know your family you mentioned joe your wife set up the beauty bible you ran the organic bakery in hastings and a venue for alternative complementary therapies 
And uh, Rima, the house of Cardi and Karim with the fantastical botanicals. Um, Gregory, as you mentioned earlier, you're all at it, aren't you? And sort of living that kind of countercultural thing all the way through, right? Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you're you're right. My 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 daughter today is feeding a uh, hundred people getting food that would otherwise be thrown away by supermarkets and what have you, applying it to um, people who really need a good square meal. My wife does the Beauty Bible. Uh, she thought up the name. Um, the Beauty Bible is big influence in the beauty industry now and is really, the, they produce something called the Green Beauty Bible that really moved the beauty industry towards better for you and more sustainable ingredients. So yeah, there's uh, been a pretty uh, positive commitment across the board to doing the right thing and doing it as well as possible. And you've got your small holding in Hastings, you're growing your own vegetables, and as you told Alice earlier, you've breaking your own bread still right for the, for the morning so I I just have to keep sort of stopping myself from opening a bakery to bake <laughs> bread that is as good as that bread because every time people come around they say what is this bread I'm going to ask you to send me the ingredients and I'll put it in the show notes okay so people can try it for themselves <laughs> at home I also didn't mention the fact that you cooked the food you prepared the food for the first Glastonbury that's right. Well, the first Glastonbury, we were involved in setting it up with Andrew Carr and Arabella Churchill, who were the kind of active protagonists if of it. There wasn't any other food available on the site. We took responsibility. to a guy called Sid Rawls, who later styled himself King of the Hippies, and came down to buy food from us so he could do free food up in the milking parlor. We gave him the food and he did a sort of bean stew with rice for people who couldn't afford to buy food. Uh, then on the Sunday, word had gotten out that there were seven or 8,000 people in a field near Pilton, near Shepton Mallet, and hot dog vans started appearing. And probably the, the most gratifying thing of the whole festival was the fact that people surrounded the hot dog vans, rocked them back and forth, shouting out, out, <laughs> out, and they turned around and left yeah. the site. So the kind of purity of the first, <laughs> I mean, I, I know now at Glastonbury you can probably get hot dogs, hamburgers, and well, all the rest of Well, you can get the whole it. thing. Festival food has massively improved in recent years. I mean, it, I think it probably went downhill after your first experiences of it, went down into the more of the kind of hot dog burger end of things. But I mean, in the recent years, it's, it's particularly at festivals like Wormwood, I'm sure Glastonbury too, you know, the food's amazing. It's, well, it's we did Reading as well mm. on for several years. And John Peel was emceeing from the stage, so he would give us a plug every couple of hours, say, oh, and if you want really good food, go to the macrobiotic mm. food tent. And we did the Isle of Wight Festival. We, did, we made a real effort at festivals, served a hell of a lot of food to a hell of a lot of people. You've been very successful. But when you look back over that time, uh, Craig, you know, right the way back to making that decision to come to London and open a macrobiotic restaurant. You must feel quite proud of the effect that you've had. Uh, I think it was McLuhan who said, the medium is the message. I was the medium, if you like, but it was the message that is what did it. You know, what I was promoting was a no-brainer, and it, it still amazes me that we're just, it's just taking a hell of a lot longer to get where we're going, but you know, it's the climate, the soil, human health, all of these things could be so much better if people had just listened to me you know, 50 years ago. And uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating from that point of view to see how little progress we've made, but it's gratifying also, you know, to go into a supermarket and seeing all this organic food and seeing all the, all right, some of it is greenwashed, but it's the fact that people use the word organic to give a veneer of quality to everything they're doing is encouraging because it's, it's getting that in people's minds as a, a real measure of, of value and quality. And 
you know, brown rice sales, you know, from nothing are huge now. You know, whole wheat bread sales, you know, people eat, people are eating better than they ever have in the, this century or the last. Quality of food is just getting better and better. What are you having for supper? Probably just saute some vegetables, throw some brown rice on top, squirt some tahini and tamari on that to jazz up the flavor and give it a bit of creaminess. And um, that'll be it. Craig Sams, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. I, I really admire what you're doing with this countercultural thing, and thank you. Thank you. There you have it. A feast, a countercultural feast with the amazing Craig Sams, another person who's extraordinarily modest about his achievements. I don't know about you, but when uh, Craig was talking at the end then, I started to feel a bit hungry, and I decided that um, I definitely could improve my diet. I might even try the microbiotic diet for a while and see if it raises my consciousness. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it raised your consciousness somewhat. If it did, come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com. Become one of our countercultural community. We're keen to build it to expand it, inspired by people like Craig and Alan Moore and some of the other guests. And we would love to include you. Uh, We'll be back next time with more tales from the other side. In the meantime, we're going to finish with one of our frequent sponsors, the artist known as The Real Tuesday World. This is a track from their upcoming album, Dreams. It's called The Young Ones a paeon to that youthful spirit, perhaps, that powered the counterculture. See you next time. <laughs>